Welcome to the Helium Podcast, Episode 11. We believe researchers should be able to focus their minds on building new knowledge and simplify the rest. I'm Christine Ogilvie Hendren. And I'm Matt Hotze. And we're your hosts for Helium Podcast. Before we get started today, we wanted to mention that we are always open for ideas from listeners to shape this podcast. From the beginning, you may remember we've mentioned our vision for Helium Podcast is to be a conversation, so much more like the coffee break or the happy hour of a conference than the conference itself. So we've already released episodes, actually, in the first 10 based on listener-contributed ideas, and we've received some very helpful follow-up emails, responding to other episodes, and sharing new guest ideas. So feel free to email matt at teamhelium.co and or christine at teamhelium.co to share your part of the conversation. On today's episode, we talk with the writer, leadership coach, speaker, and podcaster, Oscar Tromboli. He's the author of books entitled Breakthroughs, The 125-400 Rule, and the book we primarily focused on in this conversation, Deep Listening. He talks about the power of identifying listening as a skill that can be practiced and improved upon. I was really struck by his message of how fundamental a skill listening is, but how it's never directly taught. I mean, the basis of academia and research itself is learning from one another and creating more knowledge over time. So the ability to truly listen to one another and learn from one another is a really fundamental building block for the whole thing we're trying to do in research. It's a primal skill, and it's one that is really overlooked in formal education. And it's a perfect parenting skill that we all need. (laughs) That's, this is my this is my two year old daughter. Everyone, uh, now I think that I need to go and listen deeply to my two year old. We're going to listen deeply to our conversation with Oscar Trimboli. Welcome, Oscar Trimboli. We're so glad to have you with us today on the Helium Podcast. Uh, thanks for being here. I'm grateful for the invite from the other side of the world. Yeah. Well, um, I guess uh, I'd love to start by just asking you to tell us a little background about how you came to be doing what you're doing and, and what it is that you're about. I was very grateful that uh, at the age of 18 in my first job in the workplace as an audit clerk in an accounting firm where I was counting spark plugs, my manager discovered that I had dyscalculus, which is uh, uh, insane ability to transpose numbers incorrectly which kind of limits your accounting career when you type in the numbers the wrong way, you say the numbers the wrong way, or you write them the wrong way. So as a result of that, I got into um, the field of computers and um, spent the next three decades installing accounting software, human resources software, payroll software, in um, some of the largest organizations in the world and some of the smallest in the world. And along that path, I, I went through many different kinds of roles in management, whether that was leading consulting teams, engineering teams, product development teams, sales teams, and um, spent uh, a decade at Microsoft, uh, the last five years as a marketing director, and then five years Almost to the day today, I've started my own consulting practice as an expert in deep listening. Yeah, and I've and and when we were looking for guests on the show, we noticed that you've written a book about deep listening. Is that right? 
Yeah, I'm actually on, uh, that's my second book. The first book's called um, Breakthroughs, How to Confront Your Assumptions, and currently writing the third one, which is called The 125-400 Rule, The Art and Science of Listening. Wow. Well, all of that would be of really good, very pragmatic use to our listeners who are kind of faced with listening in many directions to people that might have different short-term goals than them and different problems and speaking almost different languages in terms of what they need to get done to achieve their goals or even different languages in terms of different disciplines they might be speaking to. So, you know, their time is extremely squeezed and all of it is precious. And I know that there's so much time that can be lost with the, with failures of listening. So, I wonder if you could just walk us through kind of what do you think people, most people don't realize that they don't know about deep listening? Well, thinking about the audience, uh, I think this statistic matters. We spend a minimum 55% of our day listening, yet only 2% of us have been trained in how to listen. And the more people you look after, the more of your day you spend listening. So if you're leading teams, you could be spending up to 80% of your day listening, and yet no one can remember their listening teacher at school. They can remember their math teacher. They can remember their English teacher. Uh, Christine, can you remember your listening teacher? <laughs> no, I sure cannot. And for most people, their training in listening is their parents telling them, why, why aren't you listening to me? Why, why did you do that? And um, all their teachers saying, listen up. And... It's interesting, I, whether I do this in front of an audience speaking or online surveys or part of my research that I'm doing as well, the numbers are staggeringly consistent across um, countries, across cultures, across languages. If I ask people the question, how would you rate yourself as a listener? And I give them a five-point scale and... 82% of the audience always says they're above average listener. And the reason they say that is because they don't know what good is. So here's five simple steps to help everybody think about listening. The most important person to listen to is, in fact, not the person you're speaking to. It's the biggest fallacy of listening. It's impossible to listen to somebody else if you're having a conversation in your own head about the last meeting you've attended, the bills you have to pay this evening, the trip you have to plan. You see, most people don't actually listen to themselves. You need to dial down the noise in your own head so you can actually be available to the other person so you can listen to them. So if you've got all this massive dialogue going on in your head where you're still debriefing yourself from the last meeting and you're rushing into the next meeting and there's a person in front of you talking, you're still trying to digest the jibber-jabber from the last meeting, which means you don't have any CPU cycles in your brain available for listening. Now, again, there's been some fascinating research done in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, even in uh, early 2010. And these have all been done in different research organizations inside universities as a really simple technique to help you ground yourself before you can listen to somebody else. The deeper you listen, sorry, the deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. 
So the neuroscience is really simple. The more oxygen you can get to your brain, the more available you are to be able to listen to somebody. So the very first thing you need to do when you're listening to your teams is just take a moment to pause, take in a deep breath, and that'll clear a space in your own mind so it can be available to hear what's coming in the other direction. I love that. The deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. That's such a good, you know, often we think that we know what the first step is, but usually we're skipping some kind of a step zero. And that, that idea of waiting to, you know, intentionally clearing that mental buffer so that you can hear is excellent. Maybe, yeah, maybe Christine, I, I maybe I wasn't breathing deep enough there, but did you say there were five? Did you say there were five steps? And that's just the first one? Yeah, there's five levels to listening. That's just the first one. That's preparing yourself as a listening instrument. Because what the ancients teach us is okay. whether you look at ancient Chinese wisdom, the Aboriginal communities of Australia, the native communities of North American Indians, the native communities of Africa, they all talk about listening through up to six dimensions. And when they talk about listening, hearing and seeing is only one of those dimensions. And again, it's about grounding yourself. So there's a Chinese character called Ting. Ting is the Chinese word to listen. And Ting says that, yes, your eyes and your ears matter, but the other things you need to do is bring your presence, your focus, and your heart when you listen as well. So Westerners love to deconstruct things and um, people with a Chinese heritage would hate the fact that I've deconstructed Ting because Ting is about an integrated listening. So that's just the starting point of listening. If you're not available, if you're in dialogue with yourself, you can't even begin to be present to listen to the other person. And I, I'm not advocating, you know, we do a meditation class before we go into the next meeting. But if you're going from one meeting room to another, if you're going from an elevator to another floor in a building, or you're just dialing another person uh, on the telephone and that's your next meeting, just a simple grounding of yourself to take a deep breath. If you have the opportunity that you can close your eyes while you do that, that will help you more. And just stop, just breathe, hold that breath as long as you can, and then you'll be ready. And as I said, it's simple neuroscience that says more oxygen we can get to your brain the more chance your auditory path is open to hear you know speaking of ting i was thinking of our, our of our audience in terms of the the different cultures that often they they find themselves having to mentor and so as you just actually broke something down in, and said you would, you know, culturally, somebody from China would probably not appreciate you doing that. So it actually made me think of, you know, the question of how can deep listening help people who are trying to understand people from different cultures or try to work with people from different cultures? And maybe you have an example of, of how that's changed uh, the way that people have, you know, created effective teams or created effective relationships across cultures. Yeah. Culturally, we listen differently. The genders listen differently as well. When we think about culture, uh, there's 
quite a seminal model from the 70s. Uh, a Dutchman called Hofstetter developed a cultural taxonomy. And one of the first levels of the taxonomy is orientating cultures around high context and low context cultures. A high context culture is nuanced. It's multi-layered. And a low context culture is very transactional. It's very direct. So an example of that is a North American culture. What I say is what I mean. What you agree to, I expect you to do. And the transaction progresses, whether that transaction's a contract, a dialogue, a commitment to output some work, or the next round of research paper. High context cultures are characterized by the Eastern cultures, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans. These cultures value silence. Silence isn't a signal that the person is vague while listening. It's actually a sign of respect that they're deeply considering it. In fact, you could go to work in Japan or Korea or in China and there could be a pause of up to two minutes and this is a sign of enormous respect for the other person. So be aware that that's the first level of listening that silence is considered differently. Equally, the commitment to time is very different across cultures as well. Uh, Indian standard time is... I'll be there about that time, but if you expect me to be there at 10 a.m., if I get there at 10.30, that's kind of on time. So culturally, again, we have to think about the way we listen to time differently. And cultures, the next level of, of Hofstadter's model, talked about the individual and the collective. So again, North American cultures are listening in. You can hear the eye coming out a lot, the eye for the individual the eye for the end result, what will the individual result be? But if you go into more collectivist communities and cultures, whether they're Japanese, whether they're Indian, the orientation through which you need to listen is not only what the individual is saying, but what does it mean for the team that they're part of? What does it mean for the community that they serve? What does it mean for the people that they're researching on behalf of? So culture matters tremendously. And the first thing is just to be aware of it. In, in consulting work that I did, um, one of my clients said, so if I'm culturally sensitive to them and they're culturally sensitive to me, we're going to get lost in translation. Meaning if I'm overly sensitive to that. So let's Talk about the five levels of listening so people understand. A level one is listening to yourself. Level two is listening to content. Level three is listening to context. Level four, listening to what's unsaid. And level five, listening for meaning. They're all additive, meaning the level above cannot be achieved unless you're working at a mastery level on the level below. You can't listen to the content if you've got a whole bunch of content going on in your own head, so you have to listen. It's not only the words that come out of their mouth, but what it, what it actually means for them when they say it. So what are, um, I'm curious, what are the third and fourth levels? So let's talk about the five levels of listening so people understand. A level one is listening to yourself. Level two is listening to content. Mm -hmm. Level three is listening to context. Level four, 
listening to what's unsaid. And level five, listening for meaning. They're all additive, meaning the level above cannot be achieved unless you're working at a mastery level on the level below. You can't listen to the content if you've got a whole bunch of content going on in your own head, so you have to listen to yourself first. So let's talk about listening to content next. Most people think the content's audio, what's coming out of their mouth. And that's true. That's about 50% of what you should be listening to. The difference between good and great listeners is good listeners hear words, sentences, and how that manifests itself into a dialogue. But what great listeners are doing are watching the eyes, watching the mouth, watching the body language and energy and seeing if it's congruent with the words coming out. So it's as much content as visual as it is auditory. And ultimately, one of the final levels of content is listening for their energy. Somebody can say something and be congruent, but if you actually see their energy, you notice it's either high energy or a low energy or an appropriate energy. And if you can listen to see where the incongruency is, you can quickly help the other person to unpick where they're stuck. A simple example of this is I was working with a client They had to present to a regulator and they were saying the right words and the body language was congruent, but I just got this feeling that something wasn't quite right. And and I said to Mary, is it just me or is there something else we need to talk about on this topic? And then her body slumped in the chair and she said, and she breathed out a big exhale. She goes, I don't actually believe this stuff. I said, I could tell. She goes, you could. And I said, there just wasn't something right in the energy that was coming across. Because we often work with people in our teams who want to be impressive and want to be noticed. Um, but it's, it's an energy that you notice is they're trying to get something more across than what's actually there. And there's a little bit of a disconnect. So listening to the content, again, it's quite nuanced. A lot of us just listen to words. We need to look at what the body's showing us as well. So that's level two, listening for content. Yeah, I feel like that comes out in presentations when, you know, as a, as a scientist, you know, you got a lot, you go to a lot of conferences and it seems like the, I mean, this is kind of flipping things around, but as the listener, you can really see it. And I never thought of it as the second level of listening necessarily, but you can really see the when people bring the energy and passion and you can tell that they really love the subject, it, no matter what is on their slides or what their content is, it just makes this so much better. And so what you're suggesting is just on a day to day basis, you're noticing when somebody isn't on stage performing that they're going to be able to, you're going to be able to tell, I guess, 50% of the information by looking at how they're delivering that information is whether or not that's um, sort of in a subdued way or an excited way. Uh, and that's oftentimes we're not, we may be looking for that subconsciously, but once we realize it in a conscious way, it sounds like it can really open up a lot of understanding between two different people. Yeah, you make a great point, Matt. And particularly for those listening that have to present papers overseas and particularly when they're presenting to people where English isn't their first language, people will need to use those more primal 
noticing and listening skills to engage with the presenter. So if you are presenting overseas and to people where English isn't their first language, yeah, they're absolutely going to be listening to what your energy is. And that quite often will carry you more than your words. Yeah, another way that this is making me think it would be very applicable to people who are trying to mentor students is in academia, there are these built-in power dynamics where, you know, the professor may have students and there are cultural and all sorts of aspects to this as well, where the students, as you alluded to, are saying things that they need to be impressive and they want to say the words that they believe you want them to say. And of course you want to, this is all part of setting up a culture and, and making open communication possible, but that listening to try to tell if there's a disconnect between what the person is saying and what they might actually believe could unearth some problems that need to come to light so that you can get the best research output or there's not a hidden disconnect. Uh, I, I think that that'd be very applicable for folks. Yes. And with the Hofstetter model, one of the other dimensionalities of his model was talking about hierarchical cultures versus those that aren't. So Chinese cultures and Indian cultures, uh, Eastern European cultures are very hierarchical. So the level of respect and deference paid to the person in the position of authority is quite high. So there's an inbuilt challenge when we're going and discovering new lands through our research where challenging the idea is really important but with people from those cultures it's difficult for them to articulate how to challenge in a respectful way around the idea to uh, the person leading the research because at the end of the day they're coming from a culture that has no idea about how to challenge the person who's in the position of authority so we need to make that place safe. We need to make it explicit for those people that you're working with that have come from other cultures and start to let them know that it's okay to challenge and question those in authority because that's where the breakthroughs come about. Mm -hmm. The next level of listening is listening to context. And imagine you're watching a movie that's about an 18-year-old and they're on a quiz show on TV and they're answering all the questions really well. And the TV show's called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? But they've just been arrested by the police. And if I ask you, name that movie, you'd say... Is that Slumdog Millionaire? Or am I am I'm just totally off here? <laughs> it's a, no, no, it's a great guess. And the reason we all struggle answering that question is because it's not enough context. Yeah. Jamal Mullock was five years old when his mother was killed in a riot and he was taken into the slums by a gangster and taught how to pickpocket him and his brother and, and a girlfriend travel through the streets of Mumbai and eventually gets a job in a call centre and becomes an expert in Western trivia. And then he goes on to a TV show. It's much easier to name it then because you have the context. Context is all about the backstory. And exploring the backstory with everybody gets you to the result so much faster. It means stopping, pausing, and going back just a little bit to go further, faster. 
a lot of us get stuck because we don't take the time to understand the context in which people are coming to. And a simple question you could ask in a mentoring scenario, as an example, is understand what you're saying, but could you just go back and tell me how you came about doing this, much as what we did at the beginning of the episode when you asked, you know, what was, what was my career path? So a lot of the time listening is lost because we don't take the time to explore the backstory. We get stuck in what their story is. And a lot of the time, the person who's speaking, quite frankly, is confused. The 125-400 rule says you can speak at 125 words a minute, but I can listen at 400 words a minute, and you can think at up to 900 words a minute. So imagine the brain of the person speaking has got 900 words that it's thinking about and it's trying to get it out at a pace one-tenth of what it's thinking about. So the likelihood that the first thing out of somebody's mouth is what they're actually thinking, you've got a one in ten chance that that's going to be right. And one of the ways to help tease out what they're really thinking about is to ask them about the backstory. And what you'll find sometimes is they'll say words like, what I really mean is, or they'll say words like, what I really want to say is, And that's when you know you've helped them explore that. So it means you, as a mentor, you probably have to ask three to four times more questions than you feel as natural to help them unravel what's actually in their mind. Because for a lot of us, the way we think in our head and the way we verbalize the words is completely different. It's the difference between a wash cycle where the water's really dirty and sudsy and the rinse cycle. When the rinse cycle comes out nice and clean, we all understand what that is. But for most of us, we're in wash cycle. We're bouncing ideas like a ping pong ball inside our head. And the only time we get to say it out aloud is when we're talking to that person. So context is a great way to explore that. No, and we did, and we did talk about this, but I just thought of a very, even more practical uh, reason, for example, you know, follow through with these rules and think about how you're framing your listening because you could theoretically make your meetings so much shorter because instead of everyone just talking at each other way too fast and misunderstanding each other, you, if you could just ask a couple more questions, you can get to the root of the problem much faster than if, if, if everyone feels like they need to get their piece in and make their statement. And, and in sort of a practical term, that could really help people cut down on the amount of, well, not only confusion, but the amount of time that's spent in meetings, which are generally disdained by most people. And what clients come back to me and say is those meetings that there is a simultaneous dialogue going on and people talking over each other, there's very little understanding of what the agreed outputs are. So these regular meetings come back to a day, a week, a month later, and everybody looks at each other and go, didn't we agree? No, we didn't agree to that. I, I thought you said something completely different. And we waste days, weeks, and months revisiting things because nobody's actually taken the time to ask the question. Which brings us to level four, what's unsaid. This is I think, is my favorite child of listening, the listening level I love the most. 
Because again, to tease out the 125-400 rule, it's a simple question to ask. It's a really powerful question that was taught to me. What else are you thinking about on this topic? And particularly when you're trying to discover new lands in research, we don't have all the answers. In fact, the definition of research is that you're creating new knowledge. Exploring what hasn't been said so far helps everybody explore what else is possible. I saw this done really skillfully with a leader I was observing as their listening coach and it was a team meeting and there was this huge debate and each side was saying, it's either this or it's that. And the leader just said, let's explore and. How could we do this and that? And they are group generated three additional options by him just asking that question. And it was a content-free question. You can use that question independent of domain, language, culture, and it helps everybody in the room not only explore different ideas, but it helps them hear the entire room as well. So although listening for what's unsaid is counterintuitive, it's the gift of the high-context cultures that use silence as well. What typically happens in Western dialoguing, we're too quick to speak immediately after the other person has spoken. As they draw in breath, some of us think that's the commercial break for us to come in and share our amazing opinion. But again, at that moment, just breathe deeply. Breathe with them and it's more than likely they've got more to say on that topic. So silence is a great way to generate more ideas. But it takes confidence to just sit with silence. And yet silence is the most powerful way to help the other person think more deeply about what they want to say next. Back to the uh, Canadian research that says the deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen A decade later, they did some follow-up research that said the most productive conversations ended up having breathing synchronization, meaning both parties were breathing at the same rate and eventually their heart rates started to synchronize as well. And that came through the productive use of silence. So exploring what's unsaid is really powerful because it also gives acknowledgement and respect to the other person just to give them the time to think through what they've just said. Because a lot of the time when you say something out loud, you go, well, that's not quite it. What I really mean to say is what really matters to me on this topic is, and away they go. So all of this is so interesting and I love the intentionality and the slowness, I could also see, well, slowness is obviously relative to me coming from an American academic culture where, for example, we just learned of some research out of the UK by a group, uh, Sukup et al, that are analyzing speech to, and I'm sure you've seen some work like this, uh, to time the gaps and overlaps in communication so she presented the fact that, you know, typically there's 0.2 in these meetings she analyzed particularly, 0.2 seconds between the end of someone speaking and then the beginning of the next person speaking. And I wonder if you have, um, particularly for somebody who is maybe entering into a, a big 
the culture that's already formed and they need to get their word out and establish their place in the field. And so they may not be able to set from um, a leadership perspective, this culture of sitting in the silence, which I, I love and I think helps grow the ability to have all the context in it. But do you have some practical advice for how to, from not necessarily the top, influence a culture that is so dominated by interruption? It's an extraordinarily common question. And influencing only in the meeting misses enormous opportunities before and after the meeting. So if you are trying to influence the culture of the meeting, one of the most significant ways you can do it is actually setting up the meeting. So if you are one of those people who are trying to explore how to make this a little different, the structure of the meeting itself typically is not structured in a way that is helpful for listening. Meeting agendas that are one hour long with 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there and 15 minutes there as we move through agenda items are great examples of task-orientated and sequential thinking. But one of the things we can do as leaders is to ask more questions about how we meet rather than what we discuss. So as a leader, one of the things I ask them when I do my consulting work to explore, to change the tempo of the meeting, is to just meet with the people who are going to be in that meeting beforehand and simply ask, what's productive about our meetings and what's not productive about our meetings? A lot of people will self-diagnose quite quickly that we talk over ourselves. And what you want to do as the leader is just by simply asking those questions, set the tone for difference as you approach the meeting. We underestimate the short-term change we can make. And we want to be sure that we influence the meeting before we turn up so that the culture of the meeting is something that people are conscious of because they're rarely conscious of how they interact they're all busy trying to get their point across. You know, the fascinating thing for me is that 20 weeks inside your mother's womb, the first thing you do is you learn how to hear. And at 22 weeks, you can distinguish your mother's voice from any other noise out there. And at 30 weeks, you can distinguish rock from classic music. So it's our birthright to listen. And yet the first thing we do when we come into the world is we scream out aloud because we want to get noticed. And that continues today in every meeting you go into. So the leader's role is to connect people back to their birthright and just ask them, how would we make this meeting more productive? So role modeling in the meeting is useful, but setting up the foundations for listening by getting people to listen to themselves before the meeting and asking those questions is the most powerful platform you can create to bring about long-term change in those meeting cultures. But it's hard. It's not something that's going to change within a month or 90 days. These are habitual traits that organizations develop over centuries and in academia, millennium. So we need to be 
comfortable that the change we're going to bring about won't be instant, but it'll be worth it. Thank you, Oscar. I really appreciate it. I think that's a good note to end on. It's going to take us centuries to to change the listening culture, but we got to stick with it, right? Um, so Oscar, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And w- I wanted to let you, uh, tell people where we can find out more about you and your books and your, when is your third book coming out? Uh, that's in August this year. And, and where can people go on the web to find out more about you? Um, com is the simplest way to go and find out more. That's so perfect. I, uh, I really enjoyed this and I think that starting just with the intentionality and the knowledge of the accumulative listening skills, not only in how to listen to the people that are all around folks that are trying to start out and, and be successful in a research career, but also to flip it and, you know, think how they are coming across and how to model that I think is such a powerful tool. I really appreciate learning from you today. My pleasure. What will you guys do individually as a result of this to listen differently? I already found myself doing things differently just talking to you, honestly. I mean, I breathed differently. I was more comfortable just kind of waiting for some space to think. I mean, you really did model it, and I I feel like I will be more comfortable almost sort of standing your ground in the waves type of a thing in meetings, just deciding ahead of time what type of listener and speaker I want to be. Yeah, I love the advice. Yeah, I love the advice about uh, how to just wait a few beats. In fact, I I found that in Europe, in France, there is this, there's, I, I don't know if it's a sign of respect, but they're just much more comfortable with silence. And it was something that I worked over there for a year and it was something that it took me a while to get used to, but I was like, wow, I like this. This is great. Everyone's just sitting there and actually thinking about what they're saying next instead of feeling like they need to edge wise their next opinion into the, the last millisecond before someone else speaks up. It was, it was a wonderful way to work for sure. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 11 of Helium Podcast. The show notes of this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 11. Thank you to all you listeners out there for tuning in to the Helium Podcast. We really appreciate your support. If you want to support us even more, go to www.teamhelium.co slash review it to review the podcast and let us know how we're doing. The music for this episode was provided by Michael Blake. He can be found at mblakemusic.com. This episode was edited by Zach Hendren, produced and recorded by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and Matt Hotze. Thanks and have a wonderful day. No, my daughter's totally naked and wearing a Wonder Woman cape. Okay. Awesome. That, that proves you're doing everything right. I think so. Dad of the year. <laughs>